Hello, this is Ria's Ramblings. Hey guys, welcome back to Ria's Ramblings. So like the usual, let's go ahead and start with the riddles. All right, so the previous riddle was, what word becomes shorter when you add two letters to it? So if you knew the answer to this riddle, you should have been emailing me at riaramblings at gmail.com. But if not, that's okay, next time. Okay, so I do have two shout outs, but first let's say the answer. The answer was the word short. Because when you add two letters to it, E-R, it becomes the word shorter. Okay, so my shout outs are Brooke, my classmate. So good job, Brooke. And my grand aunt, Vanvana. Great job, guys. All right, so now for this week's riddle. Drum roll, please. Okay, so I am in Mercury, Earth, Mars, and Jupiter, but not in Venus or Neptune. What am I? So this is longer, so I'm going to say it again. I am in Mercury, Earth, Mars and Jupiter, but not in Venus or Neptune. If you know the answer, be sure to email me at riaramblings at gmail.com. And this riddle is actually very fitting for today's interview because it's about space. All right, so let's go ahead and introduce our interviewee. Please welcome Ms. Bren Gregory, a data analyst from the Green Bank Observatory in West Virginia. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here today. Yeah, all right, so you ready to start? I am. Okay, so could you describe what you do at the Green Bank Observatory? Sure. So what I do is, as a data analyst is I help a lot of observers who come to the observatory to conduct some really important science. I help them set up their scripts. So to control the telescope, we use these things called scripts. I help them write those if they need help. I help them with their data reduction. I help with uh, programming certain things at the observatory. I also help with another telescope on site besides the big GBT, the 20 meter. And so I'm in charge of making sure that that's working and making sure that uh, students all around the world are able to log in and submit observations. Um, so I do quite a few different things, um, but I just get to look at uh, really interesting astronomical objects all day. So it's a really great job. Cool. Do you live in West Virginia or do you do it? I do. So I live in Green Bank, West Virginia, which is in the middle of the quiet zone. Um, so we don't have Wi-Fi, which a lot of people can't oh. Mm-hmm. And we have no cell service either uh, oh, because, wow. yeah, that interferes with our observations. So we want to make sure that our scientists who are using the telescope can get the best data possible. And so we make sure we try to reduce what we call radio frequency interference. And that means no Wi-Fi, uh, no Bluetooth or anything like that. Oh, wow. So, um, so I heard that you have like a cool uh, backstory of how you got interested in this job. Can mm -hmm. you like tell me that? Sure. Um, so I was really interested in anthropology growing up. So the study of people. And then I went to college for that. And I took a physics class, which I thought was the coolest thing ever, um, how the universe was working. And it just it blew my mind. And so I ended up following into physics and I uh, started studying stars because I was like, how what's the best way to understand what's going on in the universe around us? It's to look at stars and everything in the universe. So I followed that and then ended up in Scotland, actually, for my master's in science and astrophysics. Oh, wow. Yep. So I went to the University of Glasgow and I studied astrophysics there, focusing on gravitational waves. Um, so did a, quite a bit of research there and then knew that I wanted to keep studying in astronomy. And I found Green Bank Observatory and they do work with gravitational waves. So I sort of kept spiraling into <laughs> finding this place. And it's funny, I grew up about two hours away from here and I didn't know it existed. Um, so I had no idea the Green Bank Telescope was here. And then 
uh, I found myself in astronomy and in close to home. So it, yeah, it was a fun serendipitous event. Yeah, I'm sure Scotland was really pretty when you were over there. It was very pretty. Yeah, I definitely recommend going to Scotland if you can. Go. Yeah, I know my parents definitely want to go, so we'll go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so what college did you go to? I went to Beloit College in the middle of uh, Wisconsin. It was really small, a thousand people. So my physics department was, uh, the astronomy portion of the physics department was about four or five people. Um, so it was a small group of us uh, that were really interested in astronomy and got to do a bunch of cool stuff there. Um, and I worked at the University of Baylor in Texas for a summer, uh, looking, working with a telescope, an optical telescope down there, which was a really fun experience, but very different from radio astronomy. Um, so that was a fun experience as well. Cool. And then you said you had to study, so like to study, to go into this field, you had to study physics and stuff? Yeah, so most people do study physics. Um, I did. Uh, so I looked at kind of just classical physics, uh, as most people know it. And sometimes people will come in from engineering or math as well. But yeah, typically you'll go through physics. Um, and so you take classes like quantum mechanics, statistical mechanics, and all these things to understand the kind of the base boards of the universe. Um, to understand what we're looking at, you need to have a kind of a background. And so then I would take astronomy classes here and there and then ended up with my Bachelor of Science in Physics from Beloit College. Um, so, cool. and I got to look at some cool things like Saturn's rings when I was there. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so a wide variety of astronomical things. Must have been very pretty. Yes, they are. Uh, um, yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about like what the observatory does, like the science side. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually looked at the website of the observatory before the um, interview to prep the question. Sure. And I noticed the observatory uses radio telescopes, right? Mm -hmm. And I knew I knew nothing about this. So my first thought was that you guys had a radio station or a podcast of some mm -hmm. sort. And um, but I read some more on the website, and I kind of know a little bit more about it. So, but could you explain to the listeners and to me more about what a radio telescope is? Yeah, sure. So a radio telescope, um, if you think of the most simplest radio telescope, it's like a car antenna. So you're picking up uh, signals with that antenna. But what we do is the kind of the most versatile and powerful types of radio telescopes are parabolic dish antenna. So that's what we have here at uh, Green Bank and you have at quite a few other sites in the world. But basically what's really great about the antenna is it focuses waves from space. So we've got these radio waves coming in um, from space when you're looking at an object and then it will bounce against the surface and then go to a focal point that uh, we can then collect those waves and process them to understand what we're seeing. So those waves will come in at many different frequencies. And in order to make sure that we're looking at the frequency we want, what we do is we have um, these funnels that grab the radio waves and they are a specific size. These are called feed horns. So it, your radio waves will bounce off the dish go up to a focus and we'll collect them in these feed horns. And then those diameter, of, so feed horn is like a funnel. Yeah, and mm -hmm. so what we look at is the narrow end of that feed horn and we have it at a certain size. Uh, so it's the same size as a wavelength that we want to look at so for the channel of frequency we wanna look at. And that means that as the wave, radio wave travels uh, to the narrow end of that particular horn, it's beating perfectly against the sides and the horn becomes a true antenna. 
And so we can detect that pulse and then we can have it come through our backend system and then we can process it with computers. Um, so it's a really, think of it as a really, really fancy car antenna um, that focuses really well. And so we can see sources that are really faint in the sky using that. That's cool. Uh, that's a really good way to explain it, a car antenna. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I was actually talking to my cousin earlier because he was really interested in this and he was, sure. I was asking him, do you have any questions to ask her? Mm -hmm. um, and so I was told by my dad and I researched that you listen to it because he referenced the movie Cosmos. Um, mm -hmm. And so he referenced and he said, you know, she was listening to the signals. Well, my cousin said that it takes the signals and it converts into an image. So how does it work over there? Like, I'm just curious about that. Sure. So... Radio waves are a form of electromagnetic light. So if you think about visible light, that's at a certain wavelength. Uh, radio frequency is also at a certain wavelength. So we do say listening because when you think of radio waves, you think about listening to things. Right. Um, but it is just light. Um, physicists will use that term light for a variety of different things. Um, so it's just at a certain frequency and then we're able to pick it up uh, through our antenna and that way. So a lot of people will say listening. Um, so it, it converts to an image or? So you can't convert it to an image. Uh, what we do is if you have many spectral lines or a continuum from a source, we're able to process that and then create an image through that through different processing. Um, so the end result can turn into an image. It just depends on how you want to look at it. Um, so so uh, what color does the image like show in? Like, does it show in black and white or is it in the color of what you see it? Like what it is? So it shows in... Um, you can kind of determine what color you'd like it to show in. So oh. in our post-processing, you can choose the color scheme. Um, so you're not really looking at it as light as you would think of visible light. Um, you're looking at these spectral profiles um, that tell us a lot about the sources that we're looking at. Cool. So, so yeah. um, how do you analyze the data? Like, how do you see this image and you're like, oh, okay, this means that. How do you do that? Sure. Yeah. So it depends on what you're looking at. Um, so when we think of... Um, looking at a radio telescope, you have a bunch of different things that we look at. Uh, so a lot of those are spectral lines. Um, and then what you can see from those spectral lines is you can see emission features, and then you can also see absorption features. And this tells about us about what we're looking at. Um, so basically what we see there is, um, a certain frequency. So if you're looking at galactic hydrogen, you would be looking at 1420 megahertz. And what we look at is for how powerful that signal is. And that can tell us a lot about what is going on at the source we're looking at. Uh, hydrogen is a really great one because it's kind of like the building blocks of the universe. Uh, so a mm -hmm. lot of people look at galactic hydrogen using the GBT. Cool. Um, okay. So in what situations would you use like a radio telescope versus an optical telescope? The sure. one that most people know about. Mm -hmm. So you would use a radio telescope when you want to look at something that emits radio waves. So if you think about the electromagnetic spectrum, you have visible light, which is where you would be looking at an, with an optical telescope. And then you, uh, further along that spectrum, you have radio waves. So you may have an object that you can't see with visible light. You'd be able to see it in some cases with radio light. And it's just like with X-ray and gamma ray emission, you'll be able to see some sources with just that emission area of the spectrum. Um, so for an instance, pulsars are really great to look at with radio uh, telescopes because they emit uh, these pulses that we see um, in radiation. 
Cool. Uh, so we can use radio telescopes to pick those up. Awesome. So it's like a more detailed, it's like the, if you can't see it through an optical, you can see it through a radio telescope? Mm -hmm. In some cases, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, so what's the, like the coolest thing you've um, seen or, yeah, seen? What's the coolest thing that you have discovered slash seen? Um, so if you ask different people here, they're going to all say different things. It just depends yeah. on what people are interested in. For me, it's pulsars. I think the pulse, that pulsars are the coolest. So a pulsar is a rotating neutron star, um, and a neutron star is left over when a star bigger than the sun goes supernova. Um, so it's this really dense star. And in some cases, we see these beams of radiation coming out of them. And it looks like on Earth what we would see from a lighthouse. Um, so if you think about a pulsar like a lighthouse, a lighthouse has a beam that goes around and you see it directly towards you every so often. And it's, con it's uh, at a certain rhythm. So you know when you're gonna see it. Uh, for pulsars, we also know when we're gonna see these pulses appear. And that can tell us a lot about the size of the pulsar, the system that the pulsar is in, um, and quite a few things that you can, hear, you can learn about just by how fast this pulsar is spinning. Um, so oh, I think those are really cool. That sounds a lot of fun. I mean, it must look very pretty and be very mm -hmm. cool, yeah. Um, yeah. So are there different kinds of radio telescopes built for like different, like looking at a pulsar versus a planet or like sure. something like that? So we do have different type of, types of radio telescopes. The nice thing about the GBT is that we can do a really wide range of science here. So we go from about 100 megahertz in frequency to up to about 116 gigahertz. So that's a huge range of frequency and you can look at quite a few different things. So if you're at lower frequencies, you may look at pulsars um, and then try to determine the timing of pulsars um, and what systems they're in. And as you get up closer to higher frequencies, you can look at stuff like active galactic nuclei. We can do radar uh, with, to look at planets with the GBT as well. Um, so you can look at almost everything you can think of with the GBT because of how wide our frequency range is. So we have people here that look at galactic hydrogen. We have people here that look at star formation, that look at uh, gravitational waves using pulsars. So if you can think of it, we can probably find a way to observe it. Oh, wow, that's, that's cool. So you can, you can discover a lot of stuff about space. It's not directed mm -hmm. towards just some things. That's, yes. That sounds a lot of fun. Um, so my cousin and I both agreed on this question. Um, has the machinery ever broken um, of their telescopes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Just like anything that's electronic or has a lot of moving parts, the GBT has a lot of moving parts, um, things break. And we've got a really amazing team of engineers and software engineers and, and computing staff that all work really hard to make sure that the GBT is always working. So uh, sometimes you'll see things uh, like our active surface. So we have an active surface that makes sure that the dish is as perfect as we can get it so that we can collect as much information from the waves as possible. Sometimes that active surface will break. Um, so our engineers will go up and they'll fix it. Um, it'll, it might take a little bit, but they'll make sure that they fix it and get it working again um, for our observers. So we, have, we constantly have maintenance days where we do preventative maintenance to make sure that everything's gonna continue to work. Um, and if we see something that may, we think, hey, maybe this might break in the future, we'll go ahead and fix it ahead of time to make sure that so it, it doesn't, doesn't cause break. more problems in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because yeah. I, I could imagine you're trying to discover something and then it just breaks, kind of frustrating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so my family and I, we visited Sedona a few years ago, Arizona, mm -hmm. 
and the stars are beautiful, right? Um, and the way they made that was so that they reduced the light pollution as much as possible so that you could see the stars. Um, is there any main way that you can do that with your um, radio telescope? Like, is there a similar process that you have to do? Yeah, so we actually have quite a few things that we can do to reduce that radio frequency interference that I was talking about earlier. Oh yeah, the um, Wi-Fi. So, and, mm -hmm. yeah. so everything that you have um, electronic wise emits a signal um, and we can see it with the GBT. If you take a digital camera down site, we'll be able to see it in the data that it was on site um, because it's so sensitive. And so what we have on site is we have an area where you can't have any electronics. Um, so nothing, no electronics when you're closer to the telescope to make sure that we don't pick up anything we don't want to pick up. And then as we get out further, we ask uh, and have it so that nobody has Wi-Fi or um, there's no cell service. And that's the national radio quiet zone. Um, so we're in the middle of a national radio quiet zone. And in our, our specific GBT zone, you're not supposed to have Wi-Fi or anything like that. And the national radio quiet zone, there's uh, no cell service. And so this was put in place pretty early on because there was also a Navy base uh, close by and they needed a radio quiet zone as well. So uh, there was some legislation enacted and we were able to make sure that this area stays radio quiet. Um, and the great thing about that is that we are able to pick up really distant faint sources. Um, and we also have processes where if RFI does come into play, we can also cancel, not cancel that out, but delete it out of our data in some cases. So sometimes a satellite will pass overhead and we have no control over where satellites are gonna pass over, um, but we can ignore that one integration that it's kind of corrupted in the data and then make sure that it doesn't affect the rest of your data. So there's things you can do like that to make oh, sure wow. that RFI. Yeah, it must've been hard to adjust to like a place with no Wi-Fi and no cell service. Yeah, you yeah, realize how fast you're, you like your phone when you move mm -hmm. here. Yeah, so. you realize how spoiled you are with technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the telescopes. So do you have multiple telescopes, telescopes on site or is it just one? Sure. Yeah. So we have multiple telescopes on site and uh, we, so we have the big GBT, which is a hundred meter uh, radio telescope. And then oh, wow. we have a couple other ones. So currently the GBT and the 20 meter are the ones that are active on site and sometimes the 40, the 40 foot. So I'll just go through the different telescopes on site. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have the big GBT and then we have the 140 foot telescope. So this 140 foot telescope is actually called an equatorial mount telescope. So it's polar aligned, um, which means that it parallels the axis of the earth for its spin axis. Um, and this means that you can kind of get a really unique view of objects that are going over the sky. So and currently this one's not being used, but it has been used in the past. Um, it's really cool to see, it's nice and big. And it, it looks a little funky because it is a equatorially mounted telescope. And then we have uh, a couple of other telescopes. So we have the 20 meter telescope, which is an education telescope and students from all over the world can put in observations and get experience with radio astronomy. And also if you visit the site, sometimes you might have the opportunity uh, if you do a program to work with the 20 meter. And then we have the 40 foot, which is uh, a education telescope as well. And that one isn't automated like the other ones are. So you have to go in and do all of the radio astronomy like you would do when we radio astronomy sort of first came, first came around. 
Um, so it's not click a button and submit and observe. You get to see the entire process. Uh, we also have the Grote-Reber telescope and the Tattle telescope on site. So we have um, the Reber telescope where um, it was constructed in 1937 in his backyard, actually. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, and so he's sort of built that telescope while he was working full-time for a radio company. Um, and so that's been installed here at Green Bank. Um, and that's pretty cool. You can see it right outside our science center. Oh, wow. um, yeah. And then we have some 85 foot telescopes as well um, that were used in interferometry. So we've got quite a few different telescopes on site. So you can look at some different things with each one. Yeah, when they're operational. So currently, I think only the GBT and the 20 meter are, are operational. Oh, okay. The other ones yeah. are your four. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, so do you, um, are you guys working on any specific uh, projects? Yeah. So we accept projects from scientists all over the world. What they do is they submit for time. Um, it's it's pretty competitive to get time on the GBT because so many people want to use it for such good science. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you submit a proposal and we will go through and um, committees will decide that your proposal will be accepted. And if it's accepted, we're able to give you time on the telescope. So some of these projects will be something like mapping hydrogen in the Milky Way um, and stuff like that. And then we also have projects that are um, sort of constantly going. So we have a project called Nanograv, um, which is uses pulsar timing arrays to try and detect uh, gravitational wave signatures. So that's constantly going on. And then we have a program called SETI, um, which searches for techno signatures uh, in the universe. Um, so kind of technical signatures from other people in the universe. And that's a constantly going on project as well. Oh, cool. Um, so like, I was also thinking, um, uh, whenever I look at the night sky, I see if, you know, there's not too much light, I see the stars and I see, uh, other planets. And then if I look a month later, I'll see some other stuff because of, of the earth's movement. Mm -hmm. Um, so do you have to like, does that affect what you guys see? Do you only see certain things at certain points because of the earth's movement? Yeah. Um, so just like you looking up, we're the same with our telescope. Uh, we, everything will rise and uh, set based on the Earth's movement. And so we schedule our projects to make sure that the project that's going to be observing that their source is gonna be up. Um, whether it's just normal the day and night, um, so this the source rising and setting, or if it's because we're seeing a different portion um, due to the different time of the year. Um, so we are always making sure that we're scheduling people who can see their project in the time that they're scheduled but the GBT can see 85% of the celestial sphere. Oh, wow. Okay, so you have a lot of options. Yes. Cool. Um, so this is going to kind of sound weird. It is, it is something I'm wondering. Do you only work at night because of the night mm -hmm. sky, or can you see in space without it being night? Sure. So that's the really great thing about radio telescopes is we can observe any time of the day. We're not limited because the sun is too bright. Um, so oh, that's good. Yeah, currently we're observing right now. Somebody is using the telescope to observe currently. The only times we really shut down are as if we get really bad weather, like really bad snow. Um, we'll shut down to make sure that we the telescope is safe. And then we'll shut down on certain holidays, but that's only three days a year. So we're pretty much continuously operating all year round, observing 24-7 if we can. 
And you take the telescopes or like, are the telescopes outside so that you use mm-hmm. them? Okay. Yeah, so they're outside um, and we store them. Well, the GBT is almost constantly observing, but we have different positions for that. Uh, so if it's really snowy, we'll go into a position called snow dump to make sure that snow doesn't collect on the dish. Um, Cause it, I'm sure you can imagine a lot of snow on a big dish is really heavy. Yeah. yeah so we want to make sure that nothing happens to our telescope. Yeah, it's good. You can, you can never be too safe. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So what would you like to tell students in middle school or high school if they want to like interest the, uh, enter the space field, but they aren't really sure like how to enter that? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of different ways you can do that. Um, first, just start reading. Uh, that's my best advice. If you find a topic or you want to find a topic that you're interested in, go to the library, um, find a book on it, and then that'll help lead you different places. And it sounds kind of silly because everybody's like, okay, I read all the time. Um, but you never know what line in a book is going to yeah, really yeah. stick out. Yeah. And then I also realize look- that you don't want to do it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And then also look out for programs like the ones that we have at the GBT where you can come visit uh, and do observations with some of our educational telescopes, um, sign up for science camps, um, just kind of anything you can to kind of get interested in some of this stuff. Um, And then just be persistent. A lot of this stuff is really hard to study. Um, It's hard, it's difficult material, but it's so worth it in the end when you understand it. Um, So I know when I was studying math when I was younger, I I did not like math at all. Um, and that was my big stumbling block. I was like, I really don't like math. I don't think I want to go into this. It's really hard. Um, but if you just keep pushing at it, um, you'll get past the hard parts. And then that makes everything worth it because you get to look at some really amazing stuff. Awesome. Yeah. So um, which books, like you were talking about books, um, mm-hmm. uh, websites, or even just like YouTube channels, um, do you like recommend if anyone wants to know more about radio astronomy? Yeah, um, so the, the GBT website is a great resource, yeah. like you learned. Yeah, I'll, I'll um, link it in the description. For those awesome. Um, so we also have the NRAO website, which is the National Radio Astronomy Observatories. Um, and they're really great. They have a bunch of different resources as well. Um, if you want to get into um, other sorts of medium, I guess, mm, I haven't really thought about this. Yeah, no, that's fine. It's a good question. Yeah. Um, I mean, um, any, any books, like you said, you could go to the library and just look mm-hmm. up radio astronomy and you would find some stuff. Um, yeah, honestly, anything. Um, and then there's also books for different levels. So a lot of the radio astronomy books I'm used to are really, really intense, advanced, like scary yeah, books. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but there are some really good books out there to kind of get into it. And even just reading fiction books about radio astronomy, if you can, or, um, astronomy or science in general because that'll kind of inspire a sense of wonder as well awesome yeah thank you I hope um, that's helpful for me as well because this is mm-hmm. a really cool topic sure. um so one question that might be a hard one for you but mm-hmm. do you think there are aliens do you think there are yeah it is a hard there? question um Your and everybody has a different opinion I yeah. I don't know if there's anything out there I'm very much believe I have to see it to believe it but uh, I think that there must be something else out there. Um, I doubt that in this vast universe that we're the only things here. What we find may not look like us at all. It may be a single microbe um, Mm -hmm. as life elsewhere, but I think it would be very odd if we were the only things in the universe. Um, Yeah, that is kind of hard to think about just like us. Yeah, because it's a huge universe. It is, and there's so many different 
planets around so many different stars and so many different galaxies that all have the potential for life. Um, there's a zone called the Goldilocks zone where it has everything you need for life to exist on a planet. And I, I doubt we're the only ones that has yeah. life. So yeah. awesome. Thank you. Is there any um, sure. other questions that you wanted me to ask you or anything you also want to add before we close that? Um, I can't think of any. But if you ever have any questions, just let me know. I'm always happy to talk about yeah, of course. Uh, radio my dad, will, my dad can email you. I can email you. We'll, mm -hmm. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Okay, guys. So we'll go ahead and do the riddles and then we'll close out. Um, okay. So again, the previous riddle was what word becomes shorter when you add two letters to it? And the answer was the word short because you add the two letters ER and you get the word shorter. So shout out to my classmate Brooke and my grand aunt Vandana for answering that correctly. Good job, guys. Okay, so this week's riddle is going to be, um, uh, hold on, so this week's riddle is going to be, I am in Mercury, Earth, Mars, and Jupiter, but not in Venus or Neptune. What am I? Once again, I am in Mercury, Earth, Mars, and Jupiter, but not in Venus or Neptune. What am I? If you know the answer to this riddle, be sure to email me at riaramblings at gmail.com. You can email me anything else as well. You can email me questions that you have for Miss Bren, and I will be sure to pass these on to her. Um, yeah, so that's it for the riddles. Uh, Miss Bren, so at the end of every episode, I always say uh, equal pay for men and women, for the soccer, mm -hmm. women's national soccer team and in general. Do you want to say it with me? Sure. All right. Three, two, one. Equal pay. Equal pay. Thank you.